Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to your latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm your host today, filling in for the out of action, Phil Kirkbride and Adam Jones, Sam Carroll. Joining me today, Dave Prentice, Chris Beasley and Connor O'Neill. We're also being filmed today, if you're wondering uh, why I'm wearing a t-shirt, then that's because I started at three o'clock on a Friday. Connor, you've got no excuses. <laughs> you just came in looking. I got, I got a late call up, so. A late call, a late call to the podcast. And I never got know. the memo. Hence the red and white shirt. I can only apologise. You, sh- you should never wear red, pal. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you know, next time. <laughs> Obviously, with it being the uh, the international break, there's not a lot of uh, Everton stuff to talk about that we didn't cover in uh, the earlier edition of the Royal Blue podcast, which is available on ACAST if you haven't already caught up with that this week. So I thought we'd start with something a little bit different. Uh, Everton's new midfielder, JP Gabamon, uh, conducted a, a Q&A with the Everton website today. Bees, I think you've done an, an article on it. Yeah. Uh, so I thought we'd, we'd try some of these questions, and I'll start with you, Preno. Who's the first Everton player or person that you ever interviewed? <laughs> I wouldn't mind a bit of preparation time for uh, <laughs> questions like this. <laughs> Um, Everton person. This back in the forties, fifties. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was Tommy Lawton. <laughs> no, genuinely, I would suggest it was Howard Kendall's first wife. Uh, really? When I worked at the Formby Times, um, the editor at the time had this bright idea that you know, so I'd go around and knock on the front door and see if uh, Mrs. You know, Kendall will do a piece about um, you know my life as a football widow, if you like. You know how she's always like left her home while he's like sort of up and down the world. So I went round um, as, a, as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I think it was 18-year-old, 19-year-old at the time, <laughs> knocked on the door and she was utterly charming, said she wasn't happy to do the piece but couldn't do it there and then. I uh, could have come back on another day. So I did, came back uh, another day. She sat down, you know, sort of told me her story, showed me all kinds of little bits of memorabilia around the house, including a £5 note in a glass frame which uh, had been signed by Brian LeBone. Apparently he was notorious for not paying uh, debts, uh, gambling debts. Uh, <laughs> when he actually finally did pay one, Howard framed it because it was so, uh, so special. So it was just like a, a, quite a charming afternoon. Um, tea, so, tea and biscuits laid uh, Totally, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously I've, se- I've been back in that house many times since with Howard though, uh, you know, so enjoying something a bit stronger than tea and biscuits. <laughs> so, <laughs> talking about football issues. But yeah, probably the first proper football you know, in inverted commas interview was uh, was Howard Kendall's first missus. What, what year would that have been around, do you reckon? 1983, 84, around about that era. Just uh, the- when he was the Everton manager, he was under probably severe pressure at the time as well uh, and should have spoken about that because uh, Argamiles Road was the name of the road where they lived and uh, I, I've remember quite clearly uh, the end of the road being daubed in graffiti you know so Kendall and Carter really? out his garage doors getting daubed in graffiti at the time if only oh, yeah. they knew yeah, exactly yeah you know he had to put up with an awful lot at the time and then you know clearly turned it all around spectacularly only uh, 12-18 months later 
Bees. First, wow. first Evertonian <laughs> well, interview. Yeah, well, I, at least Dave got me a bit of thinking time there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I was trying to pad it out. Yes, of course. But what I'll actually say, it actually reminded me of something. Actually, while we're on, while we're on this, I'll tell you I'll just a slight aside. Um, the first um, Everton book that I ever read as, as a child was actually uh, written by Dave. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, what, what, I think oh it was just called God. Everton. Just I can't remember now. Um, I didn't even it was a small book. Is an author? I've, I've written about three or four, but. Yeah. Um, not strictly speaking books in the true sense of the world. I've done a number of collaborations with David France, uh, Everton historical works, which I've thoroughly enjoyed doing. But this was, oh, I can't even remember the publishers now. Again, it was in the 80s. I think you'd only have been in your 20s, Dave. Yeah, you, they, want, they wanted it, um, yeah. a book aimed at the children's market, basically, which was uh, a history of Everton Football Club, but designed for younger readers. So clearly they came to somebody whose vocabulary wasn't the, uh, <laughs> the most extensive. And uh, asked me to do it. But yeah, if, if I remember correctly, I got weighed in quite well for that. And it, was, uh, it wasn't the most challenging uh, bit of work I've ever yeah, had to do. I, I remember sort of, uh, maybe slightly... Uh, paraphrasing there but there was some quotes in it said that Everton never claimed to be the most successful um, football team of, in history just the best I remember it well, <laughs> remember it well yeah. <laughs> I've probably, probably tossed it out a few times since yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah coming, coming to my first um, Everton um, interview then I mean, I'm thinking yeah in a similar vein to Dave starting out um, as a cub reporter on, on the weeklies, it would probably have been with, when I was at the Ellesmere Port Pioneer and I interviewed um, Dave Hickson, the, the cannonball kid. Of course. Lovely, lovely man. Yeah, he was true yeah. gent. I remember yeah. once doing the Everton Stadium tour and when yeah. he used to do that as well. And again, tea and biscuits involved. I think Dave used to yeah. serve them up himself. But yeah, yeah it, would, it would have been with Dave. I remember once we went to visit, um, it was it were a, a care home where an old lady was 100 and uh, Dave was there once as well. Um, so yeah, he was very big in, in Ellesmere Port at the time, re- raised in that. Um, Community, so it would have probably been um, Dave. And then um, first game I, I did was uh, many years later was um, was at Sunderland away. But the first actual one baptism of fire, yeah, a, a last was it gasp. Stadium of Light or the yeah uh, Stadium of Light, yeah. um, a last minute winner from Tim Cale on New Year's oh, Eve. Game. Um, and they got well, battered. Yeah. They had an awful run that month. Um, they'd had the Derby defeat and the four was it four nil at Villa. Bottom, they were, were we? No, no, were, I don't think they were bottom, but they were really struggling near the foot of the table. And I think Sunderland possibly bottom who they were, were playing, but Sunderland battered them that day. Nigel Martin pulled them out of the fire and Kale nicked a, a last minute winner. So that was my last game. Sorry, my first game for the paper, but the first Everton interview of any such yeah would have been Dave Hickson. Go on, if I can throw a quick Dave Hickson anecdote in here, which brings in Howard Kendall as well, because uh, like you say, he was a lovely, lovely fella, mm-hmm. Dave Hickson, uh, you know, sort of charming chap. And uh, I got to play in a charity game oh, quite a few years ago now uh, where Howard was playing and Howard was still, you know, so reasonably fit. Dave Hickson was playing and Dave must have been in his <laughs> 60s, if not protruding on 70. And I'd, uh, Dave Watson was our, kid, our manager that day, you know, so managing Howard. And um, I'd got a little bit boxed in on the uh, on the touchline. And so I looked for the easy way out. I just turned, I could see Dave, you know, so lurking on the halfway line. So rather than try and keep possession, I just chipped a hopeful ball in his direction. Fair play, Dave Hickson, absolutely willing as anything, went charging after this ball as best a 60-odd-year-old fella can charge. <laughs> and he took about seven, eight steps, got closer, and then got his legs all tied up amongst themselves and just went flying. Now, I felt really bad about it, but half-time, not half as bad as I felt when I got to introduction at half-time, Howard went ballistic at me. Even though Waggy was the boss, <laughs> Howard just dragged me and he goes, no, your players, no, your players, you don't chip a ball for a 65-year-old to chase your dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I learned a harsh lesson that day. <laughs> a dressing down, how it came. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and Connor, before we come to you, it's a big moment for you. Royal Blue Podcast debut. It is, yeah. While you're on your, uh, on your loan spell at the Echo. So, 
famous Everton interviews or first Everton interview sorry well I actually done two in one day um, I've done some work before I started at Reach for uh, the club itself covering the academy and I've done Kevin Sheedy who was under 18's manager at the time and a lad called Shane Lavery who scored a wonder yeah. goal in Europa League a couple of weeks ago so they did and the irony of Kevin Sheedy was he used to give you more off the record when you stopped recording mm. than he did when you were talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was kind of, you sometimes wish that you just press record and went through the whole, because he'd give you more off the record than he was on the record. Mm. But no, um, Shane Lavery was probably the first player I ever spoke to and obviously he, he was in the headlines a couple of weeks ago for a wonder goal in the Europa League. You're always, always looking out for Shane following his career? Yeah. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Obviously, he was released in the summer and he, he's gone back to Linfield, which I've got a mate from university who's at his local club back yeah. home from Belfast. So he was obviously talking about some stuff and when I seen him you know, hit the headlines and get the national headlines, it was, it was good to see. And Dave, on the uh, on the subject of interviews then, anyone, any Everton figure that you've ever been starstruck by or <laughs> awestruck? Oh, well, yeah, early days. I mean, you know, you're a... Uh, uh, Basically, you come off the terraces, you know, having been an Everton supporter, you know, all my life, and then thrust into a job where you're actually talking to, you know, your heroes. And so, yeah, you know, to begin with, you are a little bit nervous, a little bit, you know, sort of tongue-tied on occasions talking to them. Um, I can't think of any one in particular that, you know, sort of particularly, you know, sort of blew me away. I mean, certainly talking about, um, you know, your first game, uh, you know, I had a, a moment there because... I was let loose at the end of the 86-87 season. Everton had already won the league. I was working for the Daily Post and uh, I was allowed to cover the final home match of the season against Tottenham. And uh, they were just about to go into the uh, cup final that year, uh, the 87 cup final. And um, I'd done the game, Everton won 1-0. Derek Manfield scored the winner, came off the bench and scored late on. And it was very different back then. There wasn't like a post-match press conference. You had to go down into the tunnel and uh, try and grab an interview with whoever you could, you know, so the manager, whichever players you could collar. And uh, I'd filed my report on the whistle that had gone over. I went downstairs, but it was a little bit slow. And David Pleat, who'd named a weakened team because Spurs were playing in the cup final and there were stories about him going to get sanctioned by the FA over it, was walking down the tunnel. And uh, the national media had already collared him and got an interview with him. Uh, now, I knew they wouldn't give me the lines. I mean, the real you know, rivalry between the national newspapers and the Echo certainly was back then. So I couldn't even have bothered trying to ask them you know, what he'd said. So I went chasing after him. He said, David, David, can I have a quick word? Yes, carried on walking. I said, are you worried about getting any uh, FA sanctions? That, you know, picking a weekend team? No, slammed the door in my face. <laughs> <That> was, uh, <laughs> so I got uh, like sort of a one-word interview yeah, with David, please. So uh, <laughs> not, not really starstruck then, but you know, so certainly in those early days, yeah, speaking to all those players, you know, yeah. so I, I was both in awe uh, and also quite nervous. And then obviously I became the Everton correspondent, you know, so after that in the 90s and, uh, you know, for... I did it for the best part of eight or nine years. And it's fair to say the players then became my mates, you know, largely because I was the local newspaper reporter who was going down there every single day. Uh, pre-season tour, used to go travel with them all the time. It's very different to how it is now. And uh, I mean, David Unsworth, Graham Stewart, top pals who I see all, all the time now. Uh, Joe Royal came to me wedding. I got very, very close to Joe. Walter Smith came to me wedding as well. You know, so it was a very, very different era then. So yeah, you know, so initially starstruck, uh, but then they became mates and now I'm just cynical. You know, so <laughs> footballers. Do you not think to just have Walter and Joe as your two best men to just have your two Everton managers standing behind no, you? No, no. They, they came to the, the evening. I did Dave Hickson, funnily enough. Mm. Uh, Forgiving you uh, all these years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily Walter said, you know, when I gave him the invitation, he was always a bit put out because I'd only invited him to the evening, Dave. No. <laughs> I said, well, I don't think you'd come to the day, do you, if I invited you? But um, he, he did, so fair play to him. 
Beers, any any stars to come on? Biggest name you've you've kind of interviewed? No, no, I'd say what well, I'd say what well, they'd come to my mind when they were speaking there. A couple of un, unusual interviews that I'd, I'd had um, when Joe uh, Brazilian Joe, as it seems we always <laughs> had to refer to him by. Um, I once um, interviewed him. Um, it was almost like a, a double uh, translation. Um, Phil, who does a lot of the translation work at Everton and uh, Liverpool. Um, um, Obviously, Joe spoke Portuguese, being a, um, a Brazilian, and um, well, Phil could speak Spanish, but he couldn't speak Portuguese. So um, it was sort of like, a, yeah, I'd, I'd ask the questions in English, and, and then they get get put into Spanish, which was uh, Joe could kind of understand a bit, and then they, he'd reply in Spanish, his second language, and then they would come back to me. Um, so that was that was an interesting one. Actually, made a good tale. I, I presume that um, Phil was actually maybe embellishing some of those answers a bit, <laughs> sound a bit more. Sounds like not the most accurate quotes yeah. in the world. Yeah. 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 And also a, 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 biz- a bizarre one I had was. Um, a couple of seasons ago, when Everton had that early Europa League start, I actually ended up taking the Rosombarok um, manager oh. to, to, to task because um, he turned out he, he was as I was a Liverpool fan, and I actually showed him a, fo- a photograph and said, "What's this all about?" And we had a good laugh about that. But that <laughs> it was a it was an interesting interview because it was entirely in um, Slovakian. What happens at these um, UEFA press conferences is they're a bit. Um, long-winded really because again you go through the translator and I was the only person from the English press who, who was um, interested in that one so basically all these Slovakian journalists came in they looked a bit like an Eastern European firm when they, they, <laughs> they walked in and um, it was just me and the, and the manager so what they did the, um, Everton brought out the Slo- Slovakian translator and it was this um, female translator from Slovakia and she had and I had this Slovakian blonde lady had to whisper all the answers into my ear as the, the, the coach was speaking I was saying uh, some people probably pay good money for this sort of treatment but um, yeah it was, it was rather a, a bizarre interview I must say but yeah they've got, got plenty of answers again so yeah but, but not all struck Same, I, I hope Chloe's not listening to this one <laughs> she's, a, she's a regular listener but... <laughs> Connor same question to you uh, not no real interviews. Obviously, I'm I'm still starting out, quite young. But I have been in the press box at Everton and Liverpool, and it is something when you see a manager sat yeah. or stood in front of you, who's you know we're in touch and distance for the first time, and you do feel a little bit starstruck almost. And only the only fortunate thing for me is I've never been to a big game, so I don't get to see any of the big managers. But it is still a, a bit of a, a sight when you you first see that you know that person that you see on the television almost every week and. And the, they were in touch and distance of you. It's quite hits you quite, you know, where the position that you're in. It is quite strange, really, isn't it? Because I remember when I was on work experience, Dave, and you and Phil took me to one of Cooman's, what probably was one of his final press conferences, and you are kind of sat there and you're just looking at them, and it's unbelievable, really, that they they are, you know, re- real people in a way who, who just just like us, but have this kind of job in the spotlight. Yeah, it's 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 strange, you know, so how you do get a little bit. I wouldn't say world weary and cynical, you know, so once you've been doing it for a while, but they do tend to, you know, sort of blur into one after a while. And it is very, very different now. Um, I mean, Connor's talking about just, you know, sort of breaking, you know, sort of into journalism now. And when I, you know, was his age starting out, you were embraced by the football clubs probably a lot more than we are now. Um, you know, the local newspaper was always treated a bit differently. Uh, and largely as a result of my predecessor's work, you know, like likes of Ken Rogers that used to go down to Belfield. He'd ring Howard Kendall in the morning, have a, like half an hour conversation with him. Then he'd go and have a cup of tea and a sit down, you know, so, and talk, you know, then. And subsequent managers also embraced that philosophy. So when I started, I was in a quite fortunate position 
have been able to go down to the training ground every single day. And we were the only newspaper that did it. I mean, the national newspapers could have done had they wanted to, but they had other things to attend to as well. So they tended to go down just once or twice a week. So every morning I'd go down and uh, you'd be taken upstairs into Belfield, into the manager's office. You'd get a cup of tea, a bit of toast. Uh, and, you know, you'd, you're basically talking about what was in the morning papers, you know, yeah. so what was correct and what wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, what you could then put out in the, uh, the evening paper. As a result, you were able to develop, you know, very close relationships with the managers. You could ring them at any time, night and day to ask them questions and they would generally answer. And you didn't feel like your journalistic principles were being compromised because you're a fan any, anyway. So you would write critical stuff, you know, so if the team was playing badly. And like many a time, you know, I've fallen out with Walter over stuff I'd written about Everton, uh, you know, and it just, you just get on with it when Joe Royal... Uh, you know, was the Everson manager, and I, w- I was a firm believer in what Joe was trying to achieve at Everson Football Club. Yet one of my colleagues, Phil McNulty, uh, had written a series of very critical uh, arguments, and that's because you know we're a, new- a newspaper that we encourage differing views, and so you know we allowed that to happen. But you know, as a result, Phil fell out with uh, with Joe spectacularly. Joe banned the Echo for a while as a result of that. Um, but it was a very, very different world. Nowadays, it's a very controlled environment, you know, where you're invited down to Finch Farm only on, you know, sort of press conference days. Um, and we do get our own separate time with Marco Silva. But again, it's in quite a controlled environment. And you can get 10 or 15 minutes worth of like good quality questions to him. But you're never, ever going to have that level of intimacy and friendship, if you like, that you would have had with managers previously. I'm not saying that's for the better or for the worse. It's just very different. But it is. I mean, I've seen some changes in the uh, journalistic landscape. I was going to say, um, I was told, Dave, back in the 80s, wouldn't Howard insist actually that they would do Melwood first and then um, totally. Belfield second so we could try and top whatever line Kenny had come <laughs> yeah, up That was the Nationals. <laughs> yeah, he would say to the yeah. Nationals, you know, no, go and do Kenny first. And they'd yeah. come and say, right, what's Kenny told you? Uh, we'll get that off the back page. I'll top that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give you the yeah. better story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, sorry, just just rewinding again to that. I've actually thought as we were speaking with the starstruck thing. I remember when Sylvester Stallone came to, <laughs> to go to some park. Yeah. And apart from Alan Green, who was obviously find a cynical line about anything, and I think he was rather critical about the area that day, which wouldn't be for the first time. But yeah. he, he seemed to... Um, you, like I said, cynical, hard-nosed national newspaper journalists were giddy yeah. at, the, at the sight of Sylvester Stallone being yeah. there. There are pictures of him with the chairman giving it all with the, the glove <laughs> and everything. Yeah. And even even the Everton crowd, who can be a cynical crowd um, uh, many times, I mean, them shout, it could have gone wrong, but they're all shouting Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. Oh, when it's Rocky Balboa, of yeah. course they were. Yeah. <laughs> my, dad said to, my dad said to me that when you used to go and watch Rocky in the pictures, People would be like standing up and going. Oh, Rocky Get films! Rocky. Rocky films were outstanding. Yeah, 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 the first, what, first what's couple. the best Rocky? It's got first, no, the, uh, the first, no, the first one. First one, and then the uh, is it the fifth, the more recent remake that's called Rocky Balboa? Is You're it? Fan? I really yeah, enjoyed that one as well. Yeah, six maybe. Was that, it was six actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean they got increasingly silly, didn't they? You know, saw four or five and so on. The four was quite good though. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're, they're great films, and you know, Slice alone is just he's, he's a great actor. You yeah. know, so he, he's not given the credit he deserves sometimes uh, because of some of the films he has appeared in. But, yeah. you know, so he is very very good. And uh, I loved that um, the Contender boxing series. I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard did quite recently. Yeah. Again, yeah, a lot of pathos in those uh, in, in those stories. But yeah, it was great seeing him at Goodison Park. I'll give I'll give Preno a break from being put on the spot for this one. We'll we'll start from from mm. this end. So, uh, Gabamon was asked what the best moment of his career was. Connor, what's been the best moment of your slightly shorter career than, <laughs> than Bees and Preno? Um, God. Probably get a full time job to be honest. Full time job. <laughs> yeah. I think you know for anyone starting out. In this industry, it's hard, you know, it's tough going. You've got to, I'm sure you, you know, you 
done it yourself, Sam, work experience after work experience. And I think when you land your, land your final, your first big job and your first you know, full-time job, it, it's a big thing. And you've got to look at it as a springboard to kick on. So, yeah, I'd probably say that. Bees? I think um, going abroad with the team and stuff like that. Um, yeah. European games, went, went, some, you go some places you'd never go to otherwise. I mean, that's one of the great things about the Europa League, <laughs> I suppose, more even than the Champions League. The Champions League, you tend to be you know, at the, at the, at the same big cities and things like that. But yeah, a decade ago, I went to Minsk in Belarus um, with, with Everton. and um, Who was that against? That was at Bati Borisov. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. so... Yeah, um, so like I said, seeing places like that, or I remember uh, when uh, Everton played at um, Alkmaar uh, AZ, um, whose stadium, it's only, it, I think it was only a year or two old when I went there 12 years ago. Of course, they had very seriously, they, part of the, the, the roof fell in um, recently, so they won't be playing Manchester United at their normal home ground. But yeah. They've been beaten by a British team, and we. They'd ne- yeah, they, had, and- they had the <laughs> longest unbeaten home run in European competition. And um, Everton, with a bit of a um, much changed side yeah. that side, because Everton had already qualified for the next round. Actually, beat them three two that Vic, night. Big uh, Vic put them to the sword, didn't he? Luby Van Hal wasn't pleased at all. He was described Everton's goals as um, like comedy capers. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, there was a, there was a, a gentleman I met last night he, 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 um, that night. Sorry, Franz Mantel, who's remained a, a close friend and. Um, Contact um, ever since. Um, he he um, got you a gift for your fourth. He did. Birthday, he he? did. He, he got he got me a book token, which uh, had <laughs> had a pun. Uh, uh, treat your shelf to a new book, so it actually sounded Dutch in, on the actual card. There. Um, but um, yeah, you said meeting people like that and going to places you wouldn't normally go to. Yeah, that's I think that'd be the highlight of the, of the job for me. The, the travel that sometimes goes with it. Proud? Would you agree with that? Going away with the team. Oh gosh, I was trying to think then because I had like a, a bit of time and just must have been about a dozen different highlights popped up that I said, yeah. I'll, I'll say winning the cup in 95, you know, because actually you know, reporting on Everton winning silverware was something special. Yeah. And I just about managed to hold it together because that was in the days when you had to dictate copy down the telephone line <laughs> and it was genuinely filling up. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, just an emotional moment seeing an Everton skipper, you know, lifting a trophy and being a part of that history. And I thought I got away with it until uh, I got into work on the uh, Monday morning and Karen, the copy taker who'd uh, been, you know, so taking me copy, I told the whole office I was in tears. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't, so I was reasonably composed, but I was close. <laughs> So I was going to say that, and then I thought, well, actually, no, probably covering the Olympic Games in 2012, which was such a special you know, occasion, yeah. you know, so doing that for two or three weeks. Then I thought, well, I'm going to went to the World Cup in 98, and that, that was like incredible again. You know, in so the co- US? In France, France. Covering, covering the uh, French World Cup. Um, Did you see Beckham? Did you see the Beckham kick? No, no, this was, uh, talking about, you know, sort of the athletics uh, track, the swimming, uh, boxing, yeah. you know, oh, so okay. I did, did all of them, basically all the scousers that were down there. Um, you know, so everything. And that was just like a great few weeks. Um, lived on a houseboat on the Thames uh, for the week while I was down there, which was a bit cheaper than getting a hotel. That, that, that's reached PLC for you. Um, but no, that was great as well. Um, <laughs> Didn't you also have to wake up a, a Russian journalist out of the men's under well, meets final yeah, or something? Yeah, because, you know, oh, that was bizarre. He's going to miss Usain Bolt or something. Yeah, because, you know, I'd, I'd been... I had a great seat, great vantage point all the way through, you know, sort of the athletics until obviously the 100 metre final, men's 100 metre final, blue ribbons event. And I'd got there about an hour, a couple of hours beforehand. And I'm walking down and you could see just all the seats are full 
And I'm thinking, oh, wow, you know, so what chance have I got here? And I spoke to one of the stewards and said, look, is there a specific seat here? And he goes, any seat that doesn't have this, like, mark on it, you can sit on. So, right, okay. So I went down. And I, there was one right near the front. It must have been, you know, like 50 yards away from the finish line. I thought, this is perfect. So I sat there and there was a seat empty to my left until literally about uh, 20 minutes later, this big, fat Russian journalist came. Uh, you know, so muttered something in Russian to him. I had no idea what he was talking. So I just nodded, sat down <laughs> alongside me, and I fell asleep. <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> Right, okay, yeah, all right, you know, so you know, fine, you know, so you're obviously not on a deadline to meet. So we're waiting and watching some of the other activities taking place, and then the, obviously the athletes come out, they're warming up. I'm thinking, only lasts nine point eight seconds. This guy's going to miss it. So in the end, I had to like nudge him and wake him up. I don't think he was grateful. He wasn't something rushing back to him. But it was, it was very, very strange. So yeah, that that was a great, great highlight as well. Uh, many of the preseason tours. I mean, certainly in the nineties, you know, so I loved going away on them. Yeah. Like I say, I was quite close to a lot of those players. So in many respects it was like going away with your mates you know so uh, sometimes yeah levels of professionalism lacking on one or two occasions <laughs> i think it's fair to say um but ju- just great times generally i mean um i was probably part of you know the journalistic you know sort of world at a good time to cover a football club i mean prior to my era 60s and 70s it was even more liberal and it probably was even better then yeah. but you know so certainly the 80s and the 90s wasn't the worst time to be following a football club around the country yeah. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I was going to say, Dave, you'd probably be in a lot more emotional in ninety four in ninety five if you'd have realised it was going to be another twenty four years without another one. Oh God, yeah. Well, the, the weirdest one was ninety four when we played Wimbledon. I mean, the emotions running riot that day. It was absolutely incredible. We'd been fielding phone calls all week in the office here from you know people just wanted some kinds of sympathy, you know, so basically yeah. they wanted reassurance that everything weren't going to go down and we couldn't give them that reassurance. <laughs> and uh, obviously we'd gone to the game and um, we didn't just need to win, we needed results elsewhere to go our yeah. way. And uh, like I said, Diamond, Graham Stewart was my big mate and uh, he told me only about six or seven weeks previously that he was on penalties. He was in the grapes in Formby and he said, you never guess who was on penalties? And I was going through the list, Unzi, no, no, so-and-so, no. Me, he says, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to need to score to keep us up and my I won't say exactly what he said, but first to say that I'll be rather nervous at that particular time. So that was going through my head, you know, so when he walked up to take the penalty kick. Anyway, it was an absolutely beautiful penalty, absolutely buried it. Uh, but when the final whistle went, the fans are going mad around the pitch. I still didn't know everything was safe. It was like, you know, why are they all celebrating? We don't know, because we'd lost sight of the fact because Chelsea were playing Sheffield United and, uh, you know, Chelsea were 2-0 down. We thought, well, Sheffield United are safe now. And all the other results hadn't gone our way. And obviously it was before, you know, social media, before, you know, Sky... So we're listening to radios trying to get what the results were elsewhere. And it was Phil McNulty sat next to me who just suddenly started screaming at me, it's okay, Sheffield United have lost, Chelsea have scored. So then realised I could bark me like paragraph of copy down the, uh, down the phone, go down. And for some bizarre reason, I had a programme with me and I made Diamonds sign it. <laughs> the most illegible scroll you've ever seen on the back of this programme. And then I just went out and did what everybody else did and got absolutely steaming drunk. <laughs> you still have the programme? I do, yeah. I've still got it home somewhere with, 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 with this illegible signature on it. <laughs> Bees, to mix it up a little bit then, this is this was not asked to JP Gabama, this is from wow. my own head. One <laughs> ever match in time, if you could go back to and be in the crowd... Oh, where would you go? Yeah, it was, it, well, if it's it it going to be um, like that, I guess, I guess the obvious one going straight into my head is one that I've Dave went to was BD the Bayern Munich um, semi final. I thought uh, you were going to be absolutely uh, smart, I said, and say uh, Dixie Dean 60. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that would have, would have been a good one to pick, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, for all those who, who were there, by, by all accounts, say it was the, the, the best atmosphere that they, they'd ever known at the ground and obviously yeah. the, the magnitude uh, of the occasion. And um, yeah, that, 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 would, that would be one, because it's a strange one for me, because I, mean, I, mean, I was around, I was, I was five years old, but it was before my football consciousness, so I'm not old enough um, to, to remember it from the time. So that, that'd be the one, that's the first one that came into my head. Well, I was there, and it was everything you've heard would, about would you, that night. Would you go back to that one, Dave, even though you were there, or would you go for the bees and try and pick up on one you'd never been to? Um, there's so many you'd like to go to and the obvious one is Dixie Dean's 60th you know so I'd love to you know see that to be part of that history but no one in my lifetime if I could go back and revisit again strangely it would be the 84 the FA Cup final uh, I've been to Wembley twice previously 77 and 84 Milk Cup final see nil-nil draws and so you know my third visit and it was Watford we knew we were going to win we knew uh, and I was a, a young 20-something lad. And so, you know, I deliberately said to the lads we travelled down with, it was one of those monumental weekends, went down in a Sherpa van, you know, which we ended up all sleeping in the back of. Uh, but I said before the game, look, we're not going to get drunk. You know, I want to save it. I want to know what's happened here. I think I had two pints before the game because I just wanted to be absolutely aware of what was happening. And uh, Sharpie's goal was down the Everton end. And I've never experienced a sensation like that before or since in my life a physical shiver ran the length of my spine when that ball rippled the net and I've told Sharpie this many times since and it was just an incredible experience and then obviously you know second half Andy Gray makes it two so 20 minutes to go there was almost like a lull in the crowd because we just knew we'd won we knew we'd won and the dawning realisation you're talking about 25 years of you know so no trophy Mm. 14 years, as was then, seemed like a lifetime because I was far too young to remember 1970. So I'd grown up getting absolute dog's abuse from Reds fans at school all my life. And so this moment was just so meaningful. It meant so much. And for it to happen at Wembley, it was just just a beautiful, beautiful day. Everything about it was wonderful. And then, uh, like I said, the weekend was legendary after that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'd I'd love to revisit that again. (laughs) I'm one of the lads who went down, kept out. He's 60 in early October. We're all getting together again to celebrate his 60th. It'll be a good weekend again. Maybe not quite as legendary. Connor? As someone who's not as old as, as Dave and Chris and hasn't got their memories of, of the 80s, the game that always stands out, and there's a lot of games in recent years that, that still stand out, but the one that stands out for me is the Ferguson heads against Man United oh, midweek. That was a good one, though. You know, the Champions League top four season. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that game was just, had everything. You know, Rooney was back at Goodison for, I think, the second time. Yeah. They they come to Goodison in the January of that se- that season and be in the FA Cup quite convincingly. We were up against it at the time for top four, and then when you know Ferguson scored the Gladys Street end, when you say a stadium rocks and you know so moves, you, you sometimes think oh it's just it's but I honestly think that night Goodison did move because it was electric. It was electric before the game, yeah, but it was yeah. when that goal when it was absolutely electric and then you know Gary Neville got the sent off <laughs> later on. Really, you really know, first game back, wasn't it? Second, it was actually second because he yeah. played in the cup tie, I think yeah, in the January. Oh, they they come they come and convincingly yeah, you know, beat yeah. us quite convincingly and I think that was a night where he kind of walked out walked out to Goodison Park thinking we've got a chance at the top forty and as yeah. someone who was relatively quite young then and has watched Liverpool have a lot of success, you know, it was that moment where you thought we're, we're on the up here, you know we've got one over on them and it was just an unforgettable night. Well, that atmosphere was everything you've just said then because, I mean, there's certain atmospheres that stick out in my memory Mm. going back down the years. And 94, Wimbledon, that that was primeval, the atmosphere that day. Uh, Bayern Munich, everything you've heard about it since. But the other you know, ones that stick out, Fiorentina. Fiorentina was an incredible atmosphere that night. I think the only reason reason Florentina doesn't get the 
the, the sort of credit maybe it deserves it because we, we crashed out Certainly. on penalties. When that goal well, goes in, though, even now, when you yeah. watch it back on YouTube, <laughs> the way the crowd swells yeah. and then yeah. the noise kind of yeah. still just yeah. jumps out at you, doesn't it? Yeah. But, but there was that United that you've just mentioned there again. That Chelsea. was on a par. And then Chelsea, the cup tie yeah. recently, when yeah. Lukaku scored that goal, yeah. that, the, the place Crazy. just exploded that I, I think the, the reason that I always think about it is, no, is it was so mean. Like in the end, it was massive, massive three points. You know, yeah. you look at the Chelsea game, it was fantastic, but we went to Wembley and you know, massively, yeah. massively underachieved that year. Florentino, the way we crashed out, you know, left everyone devastated because there was a belief at one point that season that we were going to win yeah. the UEFA Cup, you know. You, I think that was one of the great missed opportunities that season. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Rangers you, v Zenith, you, who we'd already beaten And you look, you know, we would have played Rangers in the semi-finals of, of a European competition who, at the time, we would have fancied to yeah. overcome and the finals at the Etihad and it's, it felt a lot like the script had been wrote before, yeah. you know, we, we'd have, but obviously... It wasn't to be. So I think the reason I always picked the Man United game was because in the end, you know, then three points were huge and, you know, we've done something that we've not, we've not, we've not achieved since. Yeah. I just remember the Man United game because where we lived on Walton Lane, the, the players' bus and all the fans' buses had to kind of go back down towards the motorway past it. So if we'd win, my dad used to let me get like my Everton flag and wave <laughs> it out the window at the away fans going home. And these Man United fans on this little minibus were that fuming. One of them got off the bus and like I don't know what he was gonna try and do because we were inside the house and this little like gang of scallies just came out of nowhere and I just remember them going like get back on the bus you you fat man and he just had to turn round and get back on the mini bus one of the best nights ever the Goslin the Goslin one as well sticks in my head that was a that was a good moment what about then flip side Dave even for a million pounds what's the Everton game you won't go back to you would never go back to oh gosh mine is when we got beat one nil at home to Batty Borisov. And it was like the coldest, the coldest night. night in Christendom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, I just don't think I could relive it. The, there's or a Wigan game. The, there's, no, there's, no, been, there's been a few traumatic Wigan. ones you could mention. Certainly, um, my first ever Anfield derby was in '76 when uh, David Fairclough uh, scored the winner, and I went home genuinely in floods of tears after that one. And he reminds me of that you lovely fellow, David Fairclough. He reminds me about it regularly now. <laughs> Doesn't have um, to be Tom works here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, pr probably from a personal point of view, for many many reasons. I'd say the Bradford City game in the FA Cup in '97, um, when yeah. you know it was it was the end of I wouldn't say much of an era to be honest, but you know so it, it was the end of a chapter in Everson's history. Uh, Neville Southall was nearing the end, and he got chipped by Chris Waddle from about forty odd yards. Andrew Konchelskis was going through the motions and clearly wasn't interested in playing for the football club anymore. Joe Roy was coming under, under increasing amounts of pressure, and uh, I was trying to write as supportive articles as I possibly could at the time and I was getting quite a bit of abuse from it from you know, sort of a number of Evertonians and uh, when when that ended 3-1 it was just so depressing so grim a um, couple of journalists in the press box who'd been writing critical articles about Joe you know I wouldn't say they were celebrating but they were you know so suggesting that they were vindicated you know writing what they were writing and I just felt so depressed yeah. uh, I went in, in the days when they used to have optics in the press room then and I went and just poured myself a large scotch <laughs> which I didn't ever ever do and uh, just like sort of necked that and it, it really was the beginning of the end for Joe, that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just think Joe had done an awful lot of very, very good things for Everton Football Club in a short period of time. And in the space of three months, it unraveled very quickly. Yeah. And Peter Johnson has subsequently said that he realised, you know, he didn't show enough faith in the manager and he was allowed other outside influences to have affected him. Yeah. And he should have been a little bit more resolute, uh, but he wasn't. And, you know, we had this awful scenario, you know, for two or three years now of managers coming, managers going. Uh, Peter Johnson not quite knowing who he wanted to appoint. And it was just a very, very fractured time in Everson's history that could have been avoided, really. But yeah, that's one game I'd never like to see again. 
Bees? Yeah, just following on from that. Yeah, I remember that. I was at that game myself, and as Dave said, and Rab very quickly for Joe. It's, it seems bizarre now that Joe only had one full season at the club. Yeah. Well, Dave was there for the best part of three seasons, just one full, one full season. season. I finished yeah. sixth. Yeah, yeah. Um, incredible. But we saw the same similar sort of thing with, with Ronald Koeman as well. It unraveled very quickly for him. But yeah, yeah so what came on after that? Um, that following season, yeah, 97-98 for me, go down as the worst Everton team. And I remember it was a pretty bleak period around then. What proved to be Neville Southall's last game for the club, it was a 2-0 at, yeah. at home. and that when he sat on the post? No, no that, that was, was Leeds. A, a Leeds, like, a, that was 1990 when he was um, quite unsettled at the time. But um, yeah, um, you know, a club legend, Everton, you know, best goalkeeper in the world in his pomp and um, more games for Everton than anyone else. But it's just not the right, the right way for him to bow out. I mean, you can't always control these things, but yeah, that was yeah. that was pretty grim there. Lost to, I think, Everton were bottom of the table then. But we mentioned before that, that Wigan Athletic game, oh. it was just mm. incredible. Was it three goals in about three minutes yeah. or something yeah. stupid? Um, again, there was a feeling that, you know, it could be... Everton's year, um, they were actually playing really good football towards the end of David Moyes' long reign. Um, not just the sort of direct football he was um, associated with, but good and um, entertaining football. And, you know, the the feeling is that they, they would turn over Wigan and get to to Wembley. But so, yeah, to be, for that to fall so spectacularly flat. And there was just a feeling afterwards that he was letting his contract run down at the time. And as much as he was good for Everton, did a lot of a lot more positive things. He did negative, and um, I, I think he will have to be remembered as a good Everton manager than a great Everton manager. Because there was a feeling after that game that no matter how long David Moyes was going to remain at Everton, they weren't actually going to win something under him. It was yeah. sort of like that yeah, crystallization yeah. of the thought process at that point. So yeah, that 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 was a pretty bleak one. And I remember the weather was pretty rotten. It was it was quite even though it was March, yeah, yeah. it was a pretty cold, wet day as well. Connor, I'd have to pick the Wembley semi-final when we oh, were beaten by Liverpool. Liverpool, I think you know that we went into that game on a really good run of form. We'd had a really strong sort of second half yeah. of the season. They were a total mess at the time. Yeah. They, they, I know they they had a, a good win at Blackburn. I think on the Tuesday before the game on the Saturday they come from behind and I think they scored the last minute winner but yeah. they were there for the taking and you kind of thought this is the one if we're ever going to do it if we're ever going to do it this will be the one yeah. um, and obviously we got off to a perfect start Tim Cale scored and with a, a calamity goal from Liverpool and, mm. and we were in total control they, they didn't really threaten first half and then you know Sylvain Distan back pass which you know I think will live long in the memory of all Evertonians for all the wrong reasons is pounced upon by Suarez and then lo and behold you know just the clock ticks on 90 Andy Carroll heads one in and Don't you know it, it, it was horrible it was a numb feeling what, it was one of them feelings yeah. where you kind of just you know we, we were used to losing derbies we used, used to be in that situation where but I think everyone just felt that a little bit more disappointed because of the occasion yeah. the run of form we went into and you know we it was an early kickoff on the Saturday, and yeah. you know thousands of the bargain. It was just a numb feeling, even when we another one of them, a massive, massive opportunity missed for the club. Well, it gets worse, trust me, because uh, that that was awful. But the, the semi final against Liverpool in '77, I'm not going to revisit it because I still hate it and hate what that man did that day. But to have beaten Liverpool, a great Liverpool team, in a semi final, and then be robbed by some. Mm. I'm gonna no. I'm not gonna swear. By some individual that thought he was bigger than the game. Let's not go there. It does get worse. We yeah. quickly, quickly yeah. move on. Just, just to finish then today. Uh, probably by the time this podcast is is out, I've put together a rankings of Everton's top ten Premier League transfers since 2009. So for okay. the last ten years, 
My top three. See if you quickly agree with this. Three, Lukaku. We signed him from Chelsea. Number two, Adrissa Garnagay. And number one, 60 grand, 60 grand, Seamus Coleman. Add, uh, Agreements? Disagreements? Well, without having time to think about yeah. it, but uh, you couldn't argue with Seamus Coleman because of the value for money. Uh, but Garnagay ahead of Lukaku. No, I think Lukaku, Just more Premier League goals than any Everton player. Just think gay. I was trying to encapsulate everything. Hang on, we're talking Premier League era here. No, it's last Just 10 years. Oh, 10 years. Yeah. So I was going to say, yeah. where's Tim Cahill? Yeah, where's Mikel Arteta? Yeah, so uh, last 10 years. 2009. Um, it's not a, lot of, not a lot of great business in there, I'm not going to lie. Is it, more, is it more of a damn invader for the bad business the club has done yeah. <laughs> since well, 2009? Jordan Pickford and Gilfie Sigurdsson both make the list, yeah. so that says a lot. I'd, I'd, I'd be flipping Garnagay for uh, Lukaku personally, but I wouldn't argue with the, uh, with, with the individuals. Well, I suppose um, both, they made a, bit, a huge profit on both of them, but I suppose Lukaku was club record signing at the time. It seems bizarre now how that's been dwarfed by the ever-increasing transfer numbers, but at a time when Maraman Fellaini had been the Record sign at 15 million. They almost doubled it for Lukaku for 28. But yeah, it was just an amazing piece of business. And no matter what you think about Romelu Lukaku, for me, he's head and shoulders above the rest as Everton's best um, striker at the Premier League era. Yeah, I agree with both lads. I think we'll have to change this, you know. You, you, I'm going to swap them. <laughs> you, you, you can't, you can't, you can't knock Seamus Coleman, can you, for the value for money, yeah. for what he's done, for what he's achieved, the way he's bounced back as well since his, his yeah. leg break, you know, everything, and his off the pitch demeanour as well. You know, in an era where we're so quick to slam footballers for the way they are off the pitch, and you know, for their antics and what have you, he just seems the moral professional and, and just a generally decent, nice guy. You know, yeah, I, he's a top lad. I mean, it was yeah. interesting that. I was talking to someone earlier and he was talking about Rick Keane's latest comments about, you know, Man United and stuff like mm. that. And this person says, what makes me laugh like, to think about Keane is he never ever slags James Coleman off. He always praises him. He always bigs him up. Mm. And for a man who seemingly knocks, any, knocks, anyone, well. knocks anyone who's in front of him, yeah. the fact that he, he, yeah. he even reserves you know, special praise for Seamus shows just how, how decent the guy is. But no, I, I go Lukaku as well, number two. I think I always felt he was undervalued at Everton. Yeah. I think, you know, I always felt he was People who, who you know believed that we could just survive and live without him, and I never ever for one minute thought that was the case. I always thought he was invaluable, and I think you know you look at since he's left the club, he's actually proved to be invaluable because no one's ever stepped up to the the goals he's he, he scored for the club, and you know okay the way he left and the way he kind of forced to move out, you know left a bitter taste, but you can't knock his goal record for the club and on what he what he achieved in a short time. Probably be nice for Seamus to finish with a with a trophy, wouldn't it, to go from. Club icon to club legend. We'll maybe. take the Carabao Cup. Be delighted with that this season. 100%. And he'd be captain as well. Yeah. He is indeed. Well, I'd just say to, fit, to finish about Seamus Coleman quickly. No pressure. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I remember seeing him um, out of work. Um, I was just at, um, um, they used to have um, like Chris, Christmas family events um, by by the Trafford Centre and he was there with his, his young family just having, enjoying an evening off and um, he was in some sort of um, shooting range. It was a fair ground game to win something. And, you know, Seamus Coleman, he's, he's, on, he's on big money. We talk about the 60 grand transfer fee, but I'm sure he, you know, he earns much more than that in a month. There's no secret on his Everton wages. He's a wealthy man and he certainly deserves that. But he'd won a, he'd won a prize on a, a fair ground game for his, his young daughter. And you could just see the, the delight in his eyes. You know, <laughs> this is a man who could have paid for that prize. Thousands of times over, but the fact yeah. that he he just done that little thing, he he won that for 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 his young child. He's always competitive yeah. instincts. Yeah, well, I suppose <laughs> that as well. Yeah. yeah, they always want to be a winner. But yeah. yeah, it was just nice just to see him that same, and you know, he is that nice guy that he is yeah. portrayed to be. So yeah, 
Well, that's, I think, for the International Break podcast. We got through that pretty nicely. I hope you all enjoyed us doing something a little bit different. You can rate, review, and subscribe us on Acast. Uh, and you can also join the Royal Blue Podcast Facebook group and send us all your thoughts there and on Twitter as well. Thank you to Dave, Chris, and Connor. A solid debut from him for joining me. And we'll see you again at the start of next week. Thank you very much and have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.